Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on fair and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark and EVP of Industry Relations and Business Development at Lonosity, the assessment technology company. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Maria Hamdani. She started her career as a mathematics teacher and moved into creating and managing assessments. She's worked at the New York City Department of Education at Kaplan, was a director of assessment of the College Board and director of curriculum and instruction assessment at Curriculum Associates. She has a bachelor's degree in mathematics at UTA and a master's degree in learning analytics from Teachers College, Columbia University. And she has recently joined the Center for Measurement Justice, where she's vice president of assessment and research. Welcome, Maria, and it's very good to have you on the program. Thank you so much, John, and thank you for having me. It's it's a real honor. So the question I usually ask people is, how did you get into assessment? Um, quite by accident. Um, in that, I so I was a high school mathematics teacher. I taught for 10 years. And then I had three kids in four years and needed to do something different. Um, so I was able to, that's when I actually started working for Sylvan, where I was teaching from home, and then naturally just moved into this space of assessment. This was um, 20 years ago, almost now. And so assessment at the time in publishing companies was not such a, um, it wasn't such a formal process. Um, and creating them. And so um, I sort of grew with the world of educational assessment at publishing companies and um, have been doing it ever since. And the plan was always to go back to the classroom. Um, but my roles and my um, work has grown in such a way and taken such a, um, a path that I did not anticipate. And so now I am doing something quite different, um, but the plan is still to one day, one day return to the classroom. Really, you'd like to go back to teaching? Absolutely. That was that was um, an extraordinary experience for those 10 years. And I can't wait to go back. I, I, I miss the kids. And, and I'm sure now when I go back, I will be a very different type of math teacher. But I, I love mathematics. I love kids. I love teaching. I love education. And I love what I'm doing now. Uh, so uh, that's, that's really interesting, though. I imagine you're seeking to make a big difference to a lot of kids in your in, in your role. So 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 I know you've worked at all, almost all the big ed tech companies from, from Kaplan to uh, Curriculum Associates to uh, Imagine Learning or, or whatever. Tell us a little bit about how digital assessments have changed over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Yeah, they've changed a lot. Um, you know, when I first started creating digital assessments, um, you know, I think it was probably 19 years ago now, um, we used to create them on Word documents. And then, you know, the Word documents what were served to the kids and they were sort of digital assessment. And, and then slowly there were, um, you know, different sort of software available. Um, and that has come a very long way. As you know, I mean, Question Mark was one that I used at Kaplan. Um, and, and now Learnosity is one that I've used for, for many years now. And um, the capabilities that the, these um, assessment 
software companies have created for um, to to have digital assessment in different ways and serve students in in different ways because it is really important too that um, students are able to be given different ways of showing what they can do and the digital assessment space has a very high potential to support that. That is actually one of the the four things that define an anti-racist assessment as per Dr. Jennifer Randall um, in in her paper uh, that she wrote in 2021. Um, And that is one of them, to um, allow for multiple ways of knowing and understanding and and performing the the content. And so digital assessment softwares can certainly support in that. how they can, what we want to do with them, um, what we envision the possibilities to be, those aren't there yet, but they're getting there. So evolution happens. I mean, look at ChatGPT. Who would have thunk it? And, and so um, just, just as that has evolved and will continue to evolve, I think that um, educational technology will, especially assessment technology, will continue to evolve as well. I'm sure that's the case. So let's let's look at this um, cultural assessment and anti-racist assessment because I uh, know that's a passion of yours. So I was um, speaking to somebody recently who I don't really agree with, but they were saying that the diversity really belongs more in learning than in assessment and that uh, the assessment's job is to measure. I'm sure you've heard this uh, statement by lots, lots of people. Uh, tell us why it isn't the case or if it is the case. Well, you know, yes, an assessment's job is to measure. The question is, measure what? What are we trying to measure? Yes, we're trying to measure the standard from, you know, what we're, if it's a math assessment, if we're trying to test, um, do they know how to multiply exponents? Yes, we're trying to measure that, no doubt. Does that mean that it's not an opportunity to measure something else? Does that mean that it's not an opportunity for students to be seen and heard and feel valued and affirmed? Of course it should be. You know, I, I um, am a person of color and I grew up in England and, and the U.S. I'm, I'm Indian. My parents are, my parents are immigrants. And um, never... I would probably, I mean, that's a very strong word, but I would say never, for me, of course, I graduated many, many years ago, never had I ever been represented. Me, my culture, who, and that is who I am, had never been represented in the assessments that I took. And what does that say? What does that, what message are we sending to these kids when we don't represent them? And, you know, in, in America alone, Kids of color make up 54% of our country. So we're no longer minorities. I mean, and, and the educational materials that they see, and certainly the um, assessments that they see, do not reflect that statistic. So, I mean, you could presumably have, an, if we look at maths assessment, for example, you could just have a very dry question sort of, what is this number plus this number, or how do you multiply X and Y, or, or whatever, which presumably is is culturally neutral but i think what you're suggesting is that there are questions out there which make assumptions about people's culture or background which often don't represent an, enough different cultures that's right when we talk about items with context mathematics items with context oftentimes what we think 
is is culturally neutral. There's no such thing as cultural neutrality. There's no such thing. There is a culture. Period. <laughs> to which culture are we? What which culture are we presenting to the kids? That's the question. So far to this point, it has been predominantly the white dominant culture that has been represented, and you know, I mean. There's so many different ways, and this has started. This is not just, you know, right now it is. Um, it is. I would even say the word. It's a movement. That's that's how I see it anyway. But this has not. It's not happened just now. Uh, you know, maybe 50, 10 years ago, I would say, uh, maybe fifteen years ago, when it was. Oh, we got. We should put culture in. How do we do it? It started out with very very simple things like a name, um, but not too hard to pronounce. But a name, but a name that would not trip people up. And, you know, th there was lots of discussions around these kinds of things, and they were very superficial, um, but it was a start, and you have to start somewhere. Well, now we want to go deeper and further, and now we're talking about culturally responsive and anti-racist assessment. And, you know, culturally responsive really is just saying, let's have an item about another culture. I mean, you know, if you have a, a math item that talks about John ha is learning the guitar and he learns five new songs a week. How many songs will he learn in three weeks? Something very simple like that. That's what people would generally say. Oh, that's a culturally neutral item. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Because John is not a culturally neutral name, it implies that he's more likely to be white, is I think what you're well, saying. And the guitar maybe also is more likely to be done by richer people than less well-off people or some cultures than other cultures? Sure, sure, yep, all of those things. And, you know, I mean, it would be a, a very simple substitution for that, very simple, just one example would be Raj is learning how to play the sitar and he learns five songs a week and how many songs we learn? Three. All of a sudden, every little Indian boy that is, or anyone that's Indian or looks at that item and sees themselves. They are represented and that gets to happen. And when that happens, no other culture is deprived of anything. You know, that's that's one argument some people try to make, like, you know, we're eradicating whiteness. Nobody's eradicating anything. It's not an either or situation. It's a both and. And so a lot of the people uh, listening to this podcast may well be people writing questions, uh, uh, some of them in, in K-12 or schools, others in other sectors. What advice would you give people who are either writing questions or involved in item writing teams or setting up item writing teams? That is a great question. And I would say that the advice that I would give would be to take a step back and first evaluate your process. What, what is the process in which you are creating these, these assessments? What is the environment in which you are creating these assessments? Who sits at that table? Lots, you know, it's not just about the, the actual item writing part of it is sort of, it's definitely not the beginning. There, there should be conversations around um, what is... What is it that we want to change? How far do we want to go? What can we do? Because you know, publishing companies sometimes have their hands tied if they are if they have to abide by rules of certain states. And we all know which states we're talking about that say absolutely not, no way, no how, and if you do, we'll pull all of your stuff. So there is something to be considered. There are considerations, but does that mean you can't do anything? Of course not. Find a way to 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 fulfill 
the objective, the vision that you set out for yourselves. And that's number one, find your vision. So, I mean, if your vision, as I imagine most programs should be, is that you want to be completely culturally neutral and you want to uh, promote diversity and inclusivity, how can you set up an item writing process that, that, that does that? Is it about ensuring that your authors and reviewers themselves are diverse or is it about item writing guidelines or what, what are good practices that, that work? Yes to all of the above and but to some of that. And that is, first of all, the term culturally neutral does is, is not a thing. Cultural, cultural, there's no such thing as cultural neutrality. So then it's sort of like, what are the cultures that you want to represent? And yes, these do come into play in writing your guidelines, creating your training, um, having, now, should they all be people of color? No, the responsibility and the burden should not lie solely on people of color. That is that is a very difficult thing. Now, that does not mean that you should not have some writers and reviewers that are. Um, but we get to we get to also include everybody in this process that wants to be included, regardless of your culture or your race. So. Um, when you want to create the assessments, then there are other things that you can put into place before and after. And those are things like having um, having an advisory board, having an advisory board of of what you want represented, having um, after they are created, having people that do um, content review and validate the culture that you are that you are trying to represent to to make sure that you have authentic reviews of of your content because you know i actually wrote an item for for um for something recently and it was about um it was about hair braids in the african culture and i remember thinking I knew about this. Why wouldn't I? And then researching it and thinking, oh my goodness, I actually know nothing about this. And then when my natural instinct was to relate it to a similar thing in the Indian culture, we have a thing called a paranda, which is is basically a rope that you braid into your hair. And it was like the, the intersectionality here is fantastic. And you know, it's things like this. It's it's content like this that um, is interesting. It's engaging. It um, kids see themselves when they when they see something like that. It's exciting. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times. Well, I can tell you because it's not too many. But when my kids would come home, oh, mama, you know, today they talked about this in in school and and it was really cool and it was just something so simple so small but they felt like they were important and and it's important as educators that we do that what's the damage being done by assessments being culturally biased or or racially biased i mean presumably people are not getting life opportunities that they ought to be getting that's right that that and it and it goes beyond that as well Right. It's it's about I mean, where, where did this all come from to begin with? It's a systemic issue. You know, assessments, um, assessments have been created from the beginning of time when they were created. They weren't created with culture in mind or, you know, there was no and there was no there's no um, 
purposeful bias against we're we're going to do this so it can so we can eradicate all of these different cultures. That's not happening. That's not what's happened here. Um, what has happened is systemic oppression has happened, and and it's continued. And now the awareness of the fact that that has happened, it is still in effect in so many different realms. Assessment is just one of them. That's the lane that I've chosen, but that doesn't mean this is the only lane that it's in, as as we all know. And so, um, I'm sorry, I forgot your question already. <laughs> Well, it's, it's all right. So, well, uh, uh, so I think it was the consequences of this, but but I think also a kind of follow up is how uh, how much of this is a U.S. issue and how much of this is an, an international issue because obviously there has been a lot of a, a past oppression in the U.S. and probably more subdued oppression in other countries as well. Or most countries in the world now are seeking to be very. Uh, inclusive and uh, racially equal and things. So how much of an issue do you think this is in other countries in Europe or India or other places? I think it's everywhere. I think it's everywhere. It may it may look different in different places. You know, I, I taught in India. Um, I taught in India for a year as well. And it was very interesting because here I am Indian and I thought I would fit right in because I'm Indian. But actually my culture is quite different because I did grow up in the West and although I know and love the Indian culture, it didn't take very long before I realized, oh wow, I am different here too. So and, and that and that kind of that kind of speaks to um, funds of knowledge, uh, which is, you know, each child's individual culture and what and what um, that looks like. Um, and so for me, you know, so, so and a lot of the kids that we have here in the U.S. are like that, are like I was, are like my kids are. And so it's an adaptive sort of culture that we also get to represent. Now, is this an issue all over the world? Of course it is. We, you know, of course, it, I haven't lived in every single country and I'm not an expert in every single country. I've, I've lived in three Um and um, but people are people all over the world. And so and I actually have a, um, a cousin of mine that's doing this work in England, as a matter of fact. And the same, she says, we say we face the same the same issues. Um, and the, the one thing I did want to answer, though, when you asked me, what are the, the um, sort of repercussions of not doing this? Um, it is that that kids, they feel when we make kids invisible, when we don't value them and we and they feel invisible, they grow up to be adults that are not valued and feel invisible. And we are all going to the same workforce and these issues that happen in, in schools and the confidence levels that we are really crushing for these kids, that stays with them as they become adults. And, you know, it's it's a... It's a horrible, vicious cycle, and it just gets to stop. It just gets to stop. So, I mean, I th I've just come back from the, we're recording this in, in late March, and I've just come back from this, from the ATP conference in Dallas. And there's a lot of, I mean, the assessment psychometricians and other experts, they're very, very keen to, to make their assessments fair and valid and, and reliable and uh, inclusive. There's a DEI committee of the ATP and lots of people working in this space. What? So we talked a little bit about some best practices before, have an advisory board, have item writing guidelines, do a lot of review. I mean, if, 
I think a lot of people passionately want to do the right thing. Can you suggest any more sort of practical measures that, that people can do uh, using technology or not using technology to make better assessments that are fairer? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, again, it's a matter of being mindful about it. It's a matter of finding the right partnerships for those people that are doing this research. Um, and it will take research. It will take creating assessments that are different and they, they serve sort of a different purpose. I shouldn't say a different pur purpose. They, so, they serve an additional purpose. And that is not just to test the assessments, to, but to also make students feel safe, validated, affirmed, seen. Um, and how do we do that? And how do we leverage technology to support us in doing that? And there are, you know, there are a few different ways. But what I would say, if you know, if, if you're a, a publishing company out there and you're thinking, how do I start this work? How do I go about doing this? How do we, how do we make sure we do it right? Find the right partnerships. Find the right people that are doing the research in this field, and let them continue to do the research to support the foundation of what it is that you are trying to create. And in terms of digital. What can digital vendors uh, like Question Mark Anonymity or other companies, what should they, what should we be doing to help support people who want to make fairer assessments? That's also a great question and, and I would say a similar response in that partner with the right people. I mean, um, Center of Measurement Justice, we are, we are sort of partnering with Learnosity as well to, to, um, to figure this one out. But... Um, you know, different things like I know that I believe there's I don't know which company, but somebody's already trying to do like foreign language support for um, for students that speak a, a different language. There used to be a time where if you spoke a different language, it was considered um, a, sort of a, a negative. I know that when my own kids started school, they none of them spoke English till well, the third one did because she was the third one, but the first two did not speak English till they went to school. And when they went to school, you have to fill out a form that says for their language, what is their first language? And I remember telling my friends, do not put their first language as Hindi or Gujarati or whatever it is from home. You put English because if you do, they will be placed in classes for the entire um, elementary school, all the way through sixth grade, they will be placed in certain classes that they don't need. They will have a tag on them, and it will be a negative one. They're all watching TV. They're all watching Dora the Explorer and all those little shows that they watched when they were little. They'll they'll manage just fine. Within months, my, me and my and their father constantly, nope, don't speak English in the house. Don't speak it because then, of course, and now they. They can speak their language and they can understand their, you know, their home, their, our, our home language. But of course, English is it. Of course, English is it. So um, I think foreign language support and, and really just understanding that it's not a negative. Um, uh, even things like if you're creating a passage in ELA, let's leverage technology to where in that passage, they get to choose the pronouns of that story. He, she, or they. They get to choose um, things like pop-up glossaries or um, even pop-up author bios in ELA, so we can show the diversity that that you know we are we are using diverse authors. 
then there are something that we're actually trying to, um, we are researching at CMJ, and that is scenario-based assessments in mathematics, which is similar to what we do in ELA, like we have a passage and then you have items. And so, sorry, ELA is? Oh, I'm sorry, English language arts. Reading. Right, right, yeah. yep, yep, yep. Sorry. Yep. Um, and in uh, in mathematics, you know, right now it's here's a question, answer the question. Well, in creating anti-racist assessment, we have we have realized that you can't do it without a certain amount of context, especially right now when people have not been exposed to anti-racist assessment. And so there is some explaining to do, sometimes within the item. That that kind of goes against the rules of, you know, educational psychological testing, that big book with all of the, the rules, it goes against that because it's, according to those rules, it is um, construct irrelevant. In other words, you're putting in things into this item that are not needed to solve the math problem. That is true. We are also trying to solve a different problem, and that is why. And so, how can we justify putting so much text in? Well, how about we do scenario-based mathematics? You have a story. And in the story that is engaging, the math questions are built in to it. And for this, we, we would definitely need the use of technology. What kind of technology? Perhaps there's a cartoon that plays while you're doing it. It's all mathematical and it's all, you know, or, or maybe it's storyboards or, you know, whatever that's going to look like will need the um, support of the um, assessment development companies, these, you know, Learnocity and, and so forth. Um, oh, indeed. It is actually our company that has produced, or there may be other companies as well that produce something for instant translation of, uh, of questions. You can have the question up on the screen and then click on some of the wording and you can instantly translate it to a different language to, to help people who are non-native speakers. But I think there's a, something like over 20% of people in the US speak a different language than English at home, mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of that Hispanic, but uh, other, other, languages, other languages too. Mm -hmm. What about, I think many people listening to this podcast may be uh, working in different kinds of assessment, IT certification or recruitment exams or uh, corporate development exams. Do you think these ideas apply there as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. They apply. Uh, and, what's, uh, and then it's just a question of making sure the context includes things that are apply to, to different, different cultures. That's right. Different cultures. And that, that, those are the uh, you know, culturally responsive or, um, uh, ones. And then... To make them anti-racist, you know, you, you want to anti-racist assessments. Say again, according to Dr. Randall, um, explicitly disrupt conventional negative stereotypes as they relate to like many marginalized groups, and then it, it highlights these oppressive so socio-political inequities and injustices, and hopefully, if it's done right, will empower students to in enact change. So this kind of empowerment is not only a positive, but is needed in every realm, be it K through 12, higher education, or the workforce. Uh, how fast do you think things are going to change? Oh, I think it will take at least a generation. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I get to see the change in my lifetime, I'll be, I'll be happy. And what does the change look like that really assessments are genuinely culturally neutral, even though you said it was difficult to achieve, but that the, the, but the, there is no divergence between different cultures, how, how they 
approach assessments and get results from assessments? I think for assessments to be anti-racist is, is I think, what, what... I mean, there's culturally responsive and then there's anti-racist. And culturally responsive is definitely... or, or, uh, or culturally sustaining, which means um, it really talks about and supports the culture of the area, the, the community... That is that is what's really important as well. And and I'm sorry, can you repeat your question? I think I lost the question. So I, I think it's how do you see the when things are better, what will they be, essentially? Ah uh, yes. Well they'll be in a word, an anti racist society. Fair enough, fair enough. So a new society changed too. And okay, just as we close this podcast, some calls to action. People, most people listening to this, I imagine they'll want to do the right thing. Three things that they could do and go out to, to change tomorrow or improve tomorrow that would help get us on the way. Number one, understand your own biases. Self-reflect, understand what those are, because you can't do this work until you can know who you are, understand that and accept that and then educate yourself. Number two, partner with the right people, organizations, teams, researchers, scholars, whatever, whoever that makes sense for the context in which you do your work. And um, number three, create a vision and an intention and then execute. Intention is 90% of this, 10% execution as is with anything in life. Thank you, Maria. That's uh, great to hear. And I hope uh, that might be actionable for some of our listeners. And, and thank you, all our listeners, for listening to us today. We appreciate your support. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not follow through your favorite listening platform? Also, please reach out to me directly at uh, johnoquestionmark.com with any questions. And I'm sure also you can reach out to, to Maria at the Center for Mesmerism Justice. And they've got a great website with a, a lot of resources a, a, about this. Or you can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for our best practice webinars and thank you for listening and please tune in again for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly